0: We're now moving into the very last section of the last section of the book of Ezekiel and the prophecy of Ezekiel. Let's read just the first four verses because we're not even gonna to come to them tonight. I mean, this is a strictly introduction to this particular chapter as well as the last part of this, of this book. In the five and 20th year of our captivity, in the beginning of the year, in the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year after that the city was smitten, that being, of course, Jerusalem, in the selfsame day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me thither, which means brought me there. In the visions of God, brought he me into the land of Israel. Once again, God takes him by vision into Jerusalem, or into Israel, actually. And set me upon a very high mountain by which was as the frame of a city on the south. And he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed. And he stood in the gate. And the man said unto me, Son of man, behold with thine eyes and hear with thine ears and set thine heart upon all that I shall show thee, for to the intent that I might show them unto thee art thou brought hither. Declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel." As we enter into this last section of the prophecy of Ezekiel, we would do very well in reviewing the book of Ezekiel as a whole and as general as possible. So there are four things that we want to remember about this book. First of all, we want to remember that the first three chapters dealt with the call of the prophet Ezekiel. The call of the prophet Ezekiel. The uh, chapters 4 through 24, it's a a very long section. But this uh, passage dealt with the prophecies against Jerusalem. Remember that the children of Israel and the children of Judah were both uh, as separate nations taken into captivity for their disobedience and for their, reje- uh, their, uh, well, their rejection of the commandments of the Lord. They rebelled against God. And God had sent the prophets to warn them and to warn them to come back, warn them to return, warn them to repent, but they didn't and he continued to say the more you go in this direction the more I'm going to have to send someone to take you into captivity the northern kingdom of Israel uh, was sent into captivity by the Assyrians years before the Babylonians then would come and conquer the southern uh, states of Israel which was uh, Judah and Benjamin primarily and uh, Jerusalem, of course, and because of their rebellion, uh, Babylon and uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army took the children of Israel into captivity. They took captives uh, a, a, a few times. Uh, eventually after the, after the third time, were, uh, uh, the city was uh, destroyed. And then we read in chapters 25 to 32 the prophecies against the nations. And then this last section actually begins in chapter 33. And what we find there are the prophecies pertaining to the final restoration of Israel. Now, it begins actually with a tremendous uh, uh, passage that deals with how they are going to be judged. But in the interim of all of this, Passage. the Lord is continually reminding them that they would be restored. There is always that hope. And when we got to chapters 38 and 39, of course, first of all, 37, chapter 37 was about the dry bones rising out out of uh, of the dust as uh, dead men's bones now made alive again. And God made an army of of these bones. And of course, this is... uh, Reference to the uh, rising of the state of Israel or the nation of Israel after the Holocaust. Because no one ever thought that Israel would ever become a nation again. But they did. According to God's word. According to God's commandments. And according to God's love. Because he never stopped loving his people and he never does stop loving his people. And so when we got to 38 and 39, the nations that have come against Israel and are coming against Israel and will come against Israel are going to have to face the Lord. And this is why when we studied Psalm 83 and the war that is just previous to this Gog Magog war, In other words, uh, you could consider them as one major war, but in two uh, very distinct uh, uh, rounds, as it were. The first round being the nations that are up against Israel, uh, like Egypt and and, uh, others that are mentioned there in Psalm 83. And then is the outer round, which is, of course, uh, Gog, Magog, and the Russia, Turkey, uh, the uh, Uh, Islamic nations that are north of Israel uh, Iran uh, Libya off to the south uh, west and all but all of them are going to have to face the judgment of God in other words they're going to go to battle against Israel to destroy Israel and God's going to destroy them so we see then a very active way of showing that God is protecting his people but as painful as some of the prophecies are in leading to israel's restoration nonetheless the most glorious promises that can be imagined and expected are laid out in the future for the jewish people by their god who loves them with an everlasting love and i and i want to kind of stress that because once again we have to deal with the mindset of a lot of people in the church today that hate israel the, the state of israel as it is today they hate israel and they, would, they, they much would rather support the, the, the Palestinian causes. As a matter of fact, uh, that's uh, happening more often than we want to think about. And uh, it's just people that are disregarding the word of God and the promises that God has made to his people. So if you turn to Jeremiah chapter 31 for just a moment and read these words, realize that God does not take back what he says. How many of you believe that tonight? God does not take back what he says. And I I look at this passage and I think, how can we miss this unless we spiritualize it? And I'll get to that in a moment because that's a little bit of what we're doing in this introduction. In Jeremiah 31 verses one through three, it says, at the same time saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel? and they shall be my people. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel. I want you to understand the stress that God is making about the name and the people of Israel. The people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel. When I went to cause him to rest, the Lord has appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Now, may I ask you a question? How long is everlasting? Okay, forever, (laughs) that's a pretty good answer. Well, how long is forever? Woo, it's a long time. It's a time that never ends, it's everlasting. How many of you saw, you know, the movie, you know, The the Sandlot? Y'all saw The Sandlot, you know, those boys playing baseball? THAT LITTLE KID THAT WOULD SAY FOREVER, THAT'S f- HOW LONG, FOREVER AND EVER, AND HE SAYS, I HAVE LOVED THEE WITH AN EVERLASTING LOVE, THAT'S WHY I ask THE QUESTION, I mean, HOW MANY OF YOU BELIEVE GOD DOESN'T GO BACK ON HIS WORD, HOW CAN HE PROMISE I WILL LOVE YOU FOREVER AND THEN SAY, OH, well, uh, YOU KNOW, RIGHT, CROSS FINGERS BEHIND THE BACK, THAT'S NOT OUR GOD, That's not the God of Israel. That's not the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's not the God of the people who have believed in His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, therefore, what does that mean? To sum that up, therefore, with loving kindness. and, And usually when we see this word loving kindness in the English, it is actually stated as, as a plurality, as a plural, loving kindnesses in the, in the Hebrew. Therefore, with loving kindnesses have I drawn thee. You can go all the way back to the book of Genesis as the Lord reestablished his covenant with Abraham when the patriarch was 99 years old, and he tells him in Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee. In their generations for an everlasting covenant there's that word again it is an everlasting covenant that he has made to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee and I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee now who's the seed after thee Abraham Isaac and out of Isaac comes Yaakov Jacob and from Jacob who is whose name is changed to Israel come the tribes of Israel I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and again he doesn't say I'm going to do this for an everlasting possession but because there's no buts here it's very clear and I will be their God he didn't say but he says and I will be their God. It's going to happen. It's going to happen because God has promised it. God has said it. Set it and forget it, right? Don't forget it. Alright, don't forget it. Turn to First Chronicles chapter 16. When David had now set up a tabernacle or a, or a tent <clears throat> for the ark of the covenant in the city of David he gave forth this psalm. First Chronicles 16 verses 7 by the way 7 through 22 it might seem like a really long passage well you know what it is but it's sh- short verses. Verse 7 says then on that day David delivered first this psalm to thank the Lord into the hand of Asaph and his brethren. Give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him, sing psalms unto him, talk ye of all his wondrous works. Glory ye in his name, let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. You know, this would be a very good psalm for us to read. And by the way, it's a compilation of a, a number of, of psalms that we find in the book of psalms. But this, is, this, this together here would be a wonderful thing to read before we come to church on a Sunday or on a Wednesday or a Saturday night, whenever it is that we come to church to read this and to say, this is what I wanna do when I get to church. This is what I wanna do when I come into fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I wanna sing unto the Lord. I wanna sing psalms unto him and talk ye of all his wondrous works. That's our witness. That's what we do as believers in Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 10, glory ye in his name, let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face continually. Remember his marvelous works that he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O ye seed of Israel, his servant." All right, now this is where we have to pay attention because the first part that we read, I, I, I gave that because this is what they forgot to do, forgot to worship the Lord. And they chose not to worship the Lord later on. Then they didn't seek the Lord. But see, if you stayed loving the Lord, seeking the Lord, worshiping the Lord, pr- uh, singing to the Lord, remembering the Lord, remembering his works, Oh, how can we go wrong? So then we get to verse 13. Oh, ye seed of Israel, his servant. Now we have to pay attention. You children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Remember Israel and Jacob. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Be ye mindful always of his covenant. The covenant that he made with Abraham the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, even of the covenant which he made with Abraham and of his oath unto Isaac, and has confirmed the same to Jacob for a law. Now get this, if you underline anything, and to Israel for an everlasting covenant. To Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying unto thee will I give the land of Canaan, this is God saying this to them, unto thee will I give the land of Canaan, the lot of your inheritance, when you were but few, Even a few and strangers in it. You know, I have to tell you, that sounds like today. Go to Israel today. They are much fewer than all the nations surrounding them. And there are strangers in that land too. They come, but they're, they're open to them. And they, so when you were few, but even a few, and a stranger's in it, and when they went from nation to nation, and from one kingdom to another people, this, when they were scattered, of course, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Now if we take that in context here, then we realize that even when God scattered the Jews across the world, because of their sin, because of their disobedience, because of their rebellion, did they not stay a people that were in a great sense protected by God? We cannot understand fully when we consider the Holocaust and the loss of six million Jews but one thing is for sure, out of that grave of dry bones rose up a nation, and God took those bones and put on those bones sinews and muscle and flesh, and they became an army. And I have to tell you, they're an army that is much feared in this world today. Not, maybe not as much as they, that our you know our, our armed forces are feared, here. But they're pretty feared. God has raised them up. Touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. I, I really wanted to read down to verse twenty-two because I have to I have to interject here. You know that, there there are so many of these, charlatan preachers out in, out in the, you know, airwaves that are. Always using this to say, oh, you know, don't, don't touch, touch my anointed, God says, and I'm one of God's anointed. <laughs> if you have to say it, then I don't know if I have to believe it. When you read about the anointed in the, in the, in the New Testament, read it in First John, if you believe in the Lord and you receive the Lord's Spirit, you're anointed of God. It talks about you being the anointed ones. Folks, God protects us. God protects His people. The reason I bring these passages up now has to do has to do with the controversial nature <coughs> excuse me, of the prophecies in light of the number of interpretations that there are concerning this particular portion of Ezekiel chapter 40 and following. Now we can narrow these views down to three. There are three basic views. The first is an historical approach. The second is a symbolic, uh, uh, allegorical, or spiritual approach. And what is also called a prophetic, literal approach. And I'll get to those shortly. But what makes this passage controversial is the timing of the passage itself. Chapter 40 deals with the time that will follow the tribulation period and the establishing of the Millennial Kingdom of God on the earth." The Millennial Kingdom is a 1,000-year reign of Christ on this earth, 1,000 years. And because of this, in in other words, because of uh, this aspect here, you know, there are many who see this portion of Scripture as being very symbolic or even allegorical and hence do not take the passage as being literal. Now those who are not literalists, those who do not take the Bible literally, especially here, they'll use a passage like Hebrews 7, verses 26 and 27. They're using this passage. I'm not saying that you know, this is what this all means, but this is what they'll say. They say, for such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Of course, that's speaking of Jesus. is speaking of Jesus as our high priest because he's not of the priesthood of, of, of Aaron. He's certainly of the priesthood of Melchizedek, a different priesthood. But the, but the point is that they'll use this particular passage to say, you see, everything has to be symbolic then in Ezekiel because from Ezekiel chapter 40 on, Because what what would there be reasons for having a temple and sacrifices again after Jesus has already come and given the ultimate sacrifice? Now we're going to deal with this a lot, okay? So we're not done with these statements that I'm making now. We are going to come back to it. But there is a major problem in trying to fit this passage into a symbolic frame, if you will. Because the problem is that, that you would have to ignore Ezekiel describing the temple in such great and specific detail as he does. Now think about the fact that we're gonna read a lot of stuff that is in very detailed things that God is giving to Ezekiel. And so he's describing the temple in such great and specific detail, along with everything that is associated with the temple. Why would he do that if it was only symbolic? So consider that for just a moment. In fact, in reading through the following chapters, there is nothing to suggest that this is symbolic whatsoever. Nothing to suggest that it's symbolic. It is very real in the way that it was presented by God to his prophet, and it is very real in the way that the prophet has presented it to his people and to us. We're going to see that as we get into chapters 40 through 48. I'm just just kind of laying out the plan here for us. So now, the approach that we'll take in studying these end chapters or ending chapters will be what we call the prophetic literal approach. We are going to look at it literally. But to see the distinctions from the other views and the significance of a literal interpretation, we need to see them in light of the present day prophetic positions and how the alternative approaches can be deceptive to the church today. But before we get into the distinctions, let's, let's do a, just a little bit of an overview. The Jewish people that had been in captivity in Babylon for a number of years were battling discouragement. They were battling distress and a tremendous sense of hopelessness that gripped their hearts continually. Every day they just, you know, they were hoping against hope, as some people would say. In fact, their hope was waning of of ever being free to return to their land, to rebuild their land, to rebuild their cities, especially the holy city of Jerusalem, and to rebuild their lives, as it were. Did it even matter that the Lord himself had given them a timetable for their return? Did it even matter? He gave them a timetable. Listen to what he said to them in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 11. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years, after 70 years, be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you. Now I'd say that that's a pretty good timetable. Once they go into captivity as a whole, and for 70 years they're going to stay in captivity. Now remember what the false prophets were doing. The false prophets were telling the people, Oh, listen, don't buy houses. God's going to rescue us. He's going to get us out of here. You know, given all this positive confession type stuff. Yeah, he's going to get us out of here. Yeah. And and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the other prophets were saying, no, 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 no. Build your houses here. You're going to be here 70 years. So you see, God gave them a timetable. He says, I will visit you after 70 years, I'll visit you and perform my good work towards you. Don't you think that should be encouraging? In causing you to return to this place, speaking of Jerusalem, speaking of Israel, speaking of the land. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not of evil to give you an expected end, to give you a future and a hope, as some translations say. An expected end, an expected goal. The goal is future. The goal is good. It's a hope. I know the thoughts I think towards you. Have you ever wanted to know the thoughts of God? I do all the time. (laughs) And sometimes sometimes I'm never right. I say sometimes, I'm being nice to myself. Most of the time I'm never right. But sometimes I am. And sometimes you are too. You know when? When we trust this, when we trust his word. But I want to know the thoughts of God about everything. Because I'll tell you this, my thoughts, I wouldn't give you a plug nickel for sometimes, even though I'd hope they'd be okay. I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Thoughts of peace. And folks, that's that's not just for Israel. That's just not for Judah. That's for all of us. We can take hold of this and realize his thoughts for us too are of peace and not of evil. That's why we can trust him and come to him and cry out to him be strengthened by him. Be filled with him, with his gifts and with his spirit, with his love, with his mercies, with everything that we don't have in and of ourselves, but everything that's his. So not only did he not pay attention to the length of time, and he said that he said they would come and be with him. But Ezekiel himself was given a multitude of visions by the Lord of the Jewish people returning to their land and rebuilding their nations. We studied it in chapter 34. We studied it in chapter 36. We studied, of course, in chapter 37, as I already mentioned, and in chapter 39. Now, beginning in chapter 40, the prophet receives another vision, a vision that should encourage. and and stir even more hope in the people. And that is that the Messiah himself would come to Jerusalem itself to set up his kingdom on earth and his people, the Jewish people, would now have a new temple. And and, And that new temple would be built, a new worship would be established, and essentially they would be in a new land. That little strip of land that is the size of New Jersey that we call Israel today is not all that God promised to them. He promised them land from the Nile all the way to the Euphrates. That's the new land. And so with these things in mind, Let's start looking now at the approaches that people have toward this particular passage of Scripture. Again, based upon the timing and based upon these issues of the sacrifices. And again, we're going to get into them when we get into chapter 40. But there are those commentators who view the visions of Ezekiel. This is the historical approach, by the way. Uh, These are those commentators who view the visions of Ezekiel as nothing more than the hopes and dreams that the Lord was giving to the Jewish captives in Babylon and possibly to other exiles in later generations. To give you an example of what I mean, the design, the plans of Ezekiel's temple refers to some temple in history. I'm thinking according to the historical approach. It's a plan and design referring to some temple in history, whether it be Solomon's from the past or Zerubbabel's, which would be built after the people returned from their exile. Zerubbabel in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, but primarily in Ezra. Uh, or even Herod's temple, you know, that they, they might be looking at it ahead in history to Herod's temple, uh, which, which existed during the earthly ministry of Jesus and would be destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. But this particular approach has some major flaws and weaknesses. The historical approach has major flaws and weaknesses. Because if if these were hopes and dreams in Ezekiel's vision, then they would have never come close to being fulfilled since nothing in history matches the great and pleasing hope that we find in these chapters. It just doesn't match it, the hope of what we're going to see the temple and and, and what it's gonna be like. There's another flaw to consider, and that is that the historical temples were not built to match the design, the the temple that Ezekiel describes. They weren't built to match it. Anything on this earth, you know, up to this time, would not ever match the description of the temple that was given here in Ezekiel. We're going to be studying that in, in in the next few weeks. There's another weakness in the historical approach. It has to do with the historical temples having high priests who ministered before the Lord and would oversee the functions of the temple and the people's worship. Yet we're going to see that in Ezekiel's vision, there is no mention at all of a high priest ministering within the temple and overseeing the worship of the people no mention of a high priest. That's significant. Also, there is no record in the scriptures, and this is very important, so listen carefully. There is no record in the scriptures of the glory of God filling the temple of Zerubbabel. Look it up. We saw how the glory of God fell upon the tabernacle and the wilderness, and when the temple of Solomon was built, the glory of God came upon the temple. But no glory fell upon the house of Z- or the, the temple of Zerubbabel, that temple that was uh, that temple that was built by the returned exiles nor do we find. Now, we find that Jesus was in the Temple of Herod, but generally speaking, we do not find anything that in any way, shape, or form that said that the glory of God fell upon the, te- the, the Temple of Herod. The Temple of Herod was a magnificent structure. And uh, People came from miles on in to come to see this temple. The Jews praised their temple. Jesus said, Not long from now, not one stone is going to be upon the other. When we get to the description of the worship, the sacrifices, the priesthood in Ezekiel's vision, we will discover that those practices have never been instituted in any historical temple. And we're going to read that in chapters 43 uh, through 46. 43 through 46. Lastly, Ezekiel's description of a land division has never and will never take place as the world is seeking for it to take place today a land division in Israel Ezekiel talks about a land division changes in topography and even the geography will have to occur before they are implemented according to the prophet's account in chapters 45, 47 and 48 so when you consider the historical approach, it is found lacking for all of these reasons. But there is, there is a, a place of, or, the, or a type of theology within eschatology, eschatology is the study of end time things, last day events and all. And today it's called preterism. Preterism, p-r-e-t-e-r-i-s-m, preterism. And simply, preterism is this. It is the belief that the prophecies in the Bible about the end times, if if you're a full preterist and you believe that all the prophecies, you could be a partial preterist and believe only part of the prophecies of the end time have been fulfilled. But the belief is that the prophecies in the Bible about the end times have already been fulfilled. In other words, every prophecy in the Old Testament, every prophecy in the New Testament, which of course includes the book of Revelation, has been already fulfilled. That's preterism. And that's essentially wrong. There are still things yet to happen. And we know that because of the nation of Israel. We know that. So to deny Israel, as the preterists do for the most part, is, is, to, is to really deny the word of God. Then there's the symbolic approach. The symbolic approach, allegorical or spiritual, is one that is closely linked to preterism and the historical view. But the majority of what is known as the visible church today holds to this position and approach, the symbolic approach, that everything we read is really symbolic, it's allegorical, or it's a spiritual, spiritualizing of the word of God. So uh, there's numbers of people that hold to this position, and the key to their view, the key to their view is that from their perspective, Israel could never occupy all the land described in Ezekiel's vision. They could never occupy the land and because Jesus Christ has already died for the sins of the world they have great difficulty accepting that sacrifices, animal sacrifices will be reinstituted in a rebuilt temple and so they seek to apply the prophecy of Ezekiel then to the church they are spiritualizing the prophecy so that it would end up being you know, a, a, a focus on the church the church of Jesus Christ In a nutshell, they believe that the future temple is a picture of the ideal church. The future temple is a picture of the ideal church. They believe that the worship described by the prophet Ezekiel is a picture of the ideal worship for God's people. And they believe that the land description is a picture of the inheritance of heaven promise to all believers so they have just super spiritualized the prophecy of Ezekiel to be fair there are many pictures given in the Hebrew Scriptures we talk about them all the time there are pictures given in the Hebrew Scriptures that can be applied as examples to the church and for the church examples to the church and for the church let me give you one example what it says in Romans 15 verse 4 Paul says, for whatsoever things were written aforetime, which means whatever things were written way before, speaking of the Old Testament, were written for our learning. They were written for us in the church. That we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So the Old Testament is good for us. It's good for us to read it, it's good for us to know it because we need to realize that it's all about God's love for his people Israel. Then in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, Paul said this, Now all these things happened unto them for examples. Now this is interesting, the word ensample there, right? Most of your, most of your uh, translations probably say examples. But they're really two different words. This is more like saying uh, it happened to them as a sample. A sample is something that you can touch, taste, hold, feel something, right? That's what this means. An example would be something that is, you know, well that that, that being done here and there is an example of, of of something happening. Doesn't necessarily have to be solid, you know, but it is, but a sample is. You know, if you go to if you go to Sam's, right? You, you, people are uh, got these little these little carts there, and you know, the, would you like to sample something? And you say, yeah, okay, let me stand there. Okay, show me, give me an example of what it tastes like. See, that's an example. Give me an example. Well, that's not going to help. Give me that thing so I can sample it and taste it and love it and give me five more. Because they only give you one. They're very stingy at Sam's. (laughs) The difference. (laughs) King James is a very interesting, teaches us some great things. Not about Sam's, but about, you know, the word. So all these things happen unto them in samples. These are samples for us to take hold of. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. But in spite of all of that, there are some obvious and blatant weaknesses in the symbolic approach. This approach tends to ignore the normal meaning of words and language. And even the historical understanding and interpretation of scripture. Second, there are a number of inconsistencies in this approach. One being that these people will accept the earlier prophecies of Ezekiel as having been literally fulfilled, but will interpret the unfulfilled prophecies as symbolic. So if the prophecies before a certain time had been fulfilled as God said they would be, they say, well, they were literally fulfilled. But if there are prophecies given for later on, they say, well, no, those are going to be spiritual. But who are they to determine that? And how can that be determined in, in, with, with just uh, you know, the, uh, with, with just a whim, the symbolic approach becomes quite subjective. In that it, will follow, or that it will allow the reader to make a passage say anything he or she wants it to say. That's the problem of not reading and studying the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. One very great flaw in this approach is that it fails to honor the warnings given to Ezekiel. The symbolic approach fails to honor the warnings given to Ezekiel. The prophet was warned by the Lord to pay close attention and to write down the details of all the Lord showed him so that the people could faithfully follow the pattern and principles given. Take, for example, verse 4 of this chapter, Ezekiel 40. And the man said unto me, Son of man, behold with thine eyes. The word behold means look on that thing and don't stop looking. Behold with thine eyes and hear with thine ears and set thine heart upon all that I shall show thee. Do you think that's important? You think what he's telling Ezekiel is important for him to do? He says, For to the intent that I might show them unto thee art thou brought here. This is why I brought you here. Declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel. Ezekiel had to hear and to see and take it all in and not leave one detail out. But the symbolic, allegorical, and... uh, spiritual approaches leaves everything out practically take for example ezekiel 43 verses 10 and 11 by the way verse 11 has got a lot of words in it i mean this is one of the longest verses in the bible verse 10 says thou son of man show the house to the house of israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities there's a reason why he's doing what he's doing with that temple and then he says, and let them measure the pattern. Wow, that, that means you can't spiritualize this. If he's telling you to measure the pattern of this particular temple, there's a reason for it. Notice verse 11, and if they be ashamed of all that they have done, show them the form of the house, and the fashion thereof, and the goings out thereof, and the comings in thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the ordinance thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the laws thereof, and write it in their sight. Oh, Lord, that's just too much. Let's spiritualize it. Did Ezekiel do that? He was in fear of God. I mean, the proper fear. He was in reverential fear of God. He paid attention to all those things I said. Write it in their sight that they may keep the whole form thereof and all the ordinance thereof and do them. You can't spiritualize what God is giving you to say to the children of Israel. Ezekiel 44, verse 5. And the Lord said unto me, Son of man, mark well, and behold with thine eyes, and hear with thine ears all that I say unto thee concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord and all the laws thereof, and mark well the entering in of the house with every going forth of the sanctuary. Those were warnings to the prophet. can't spiritualize what God tells you. When the scriptures are approached sincerely, honestly, and objectively, it isn't so hard to realize that the many design details were given so that the people could rebuild the temple and faithfully follow the worship procedures being explained. But if the symbolic approach ignores the many details and measurements given throughout these last chapters of Ezekiel, are those who hold to this view not saying that the measurements of the gates, of the steps, of the passageways, of the rooms, of the walls, of the courtyards, and the structures are not that important because it was all meant to give a picture of the ideal church and worship of God's people? See, that doesn't make sense at all. It does not make sense at all to spiritualize this passage or any of the passages given in Ezekiel. So it leads to another great flaw. The symbolic, allegorical, spiritualized position fails to account for the fact that Ezekiel omits many of the significant and important furnishings of the temple and worship procedures of the Hebrew scriptures. There is no mention of the ark. The lampstand, the menorah, the veil, or even the high priest. No mention of them. That's significant. And there's a reason. We're going to know that reason when we study this passage. There are only three of five sacrifices mentioned, and actually only two of the feasts are mentioned. Two of the seven feasts. But the gravest of the flaws is that this approach makes no distinction between the church and Israel no distinction and how can that be do we only take the blessings that were given to israel and but but you know put aside all of the consequences consequential things like you know the the discipline the chastisement that's crazy in fact, it holds to the position. I say the, the spiritual approach or the symbolic approach holds to the position that the church is the new Israel. The church is Israel now, not Israel. It's just a bunch of lost people over there in Israel. Well, they may be lost, but God knows where they are because he put them there. He put them there. Well, let's get back to that one of these days, like pretty soon. It holds to the position that the church is the new Israel. This is what is called replacement theology. Replacement theology is combined, when you combine it with something called dominionism, you are, you're dealing with something that's completely unbiblical. And they tell you that Israel has lost all of its blessings from God for rejecting their Messiah. In the strongest terms, replacement theology proponents condemn the nation of Israel as illegitimate and will even show much more compassion, as I said before, to the Palestinians. We'll deal with that another time. So our approach then, our approach, has been and will always be the prophetic, literal approach. The main reason for following this approach is simple. When you follow the prophetic literal approach, you let the the scriptures speak for themselves. And it takes all of scripture at face value. Because it's God's word. In using this approach, there's no need to read any meaning into the scriptures that is not clearly stated by the immediate passage or by some other passage. In other words, when the meaning of a passage may not be clear, Other scriptures are allowed to interpret the unclear passage. That's why we study the word the way we do here. Because sometimes we'll get to a verse and say, man, what does that mean? So we, we, you know, we first of all look at the verse, we take the verse apart, uh, you know, look at the words, what they mean, and all. And then we bring in other scriptures to substantiate that verse. We do this all the time. That is the literal prophetic approach. In light of this approach, Ezekiel's vision is accepted as a prophecy of the great and wonderful future the Lord has planned for the Jewish people the day is coming when the Jewish people will return more fully into the promised land they will worship the Lord exactly as he has always instructed them and they will receive their personal inheritance of the land but what will they see first what will they see first they will see him whom they pierced. How can that already have been fulfilled? How? He hasn't come yet. He hasn't come again yet. But the Zechariah prophecy has to be fulfilled. But Jesus will come, the Messiah will. His feet will land upon the Mount of Olives. Those of you who have been to the Mount of Olives, wasn't it exciting when we got there and we said, This is where Jesus going, going to be sitting right here boom, boom, you know, not sitting, but standing. And then he's going to go across that valley into the city of Jerusalem. Everything's going to change. Remember, I said that the, the topography has to change, the geography, it changes right there in the, in the prophecy of Zechariah. It starts to change that's the word of God speaking for itself so in our next study I just want to pick up where we're leaving off here and then we're going to get into into the prophecy chapter 40 but uh, I want to continue just because there's a few things that we need to deal with on the fulfillment of the covenants that the Lord established with his people, Israel, and deal with the issue of the reinstitution of the sacrifices in the temple being described in Ezekiel. It'll be short before we get into the the rest of the passage. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, we have to understand why they're gonna be reinstituted. In other words, the sacrifices in this particular millennial kingdom, uh, temple in the millennial kingdom. But I wanna, let's let's close with this passage, Jeremiah 31. I know that we were there earlier, but uh, we're going to look at verses 31 through 34. And I, and I use these particular verses uh, because they've, they've always been very special to me because of, of the nation and the land and the people of Israel and how we, we've never really given them the due, you know, for letting their God be God and letting their God be God to them. And one day they will see him one day they will trust him, one day they will they will embrace him. Behold, it says, "The day comes, or the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel." Now folks, listen, that is a beautiful statement. He's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And with the house of Judah, all of Israel. In other words, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, no, which my covenant they break. Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. Where is the law? In Israel today. It's in their books. It's in the, in the you know, it's in the Tanakh, uh, the Torah, and they have it with them. They read it, they study, it, and they do all kinds of things to express, you know, what they believe is, is their, their love for God, their love for the Word, but it's all here. He says, I'm going to put your law, my law, inside of you. Has he done that with us already? Has he not changed our hearts and said, I'm going to not only come upon you and alongside of you, but I'm going to come in you, in you. By the way, we are to be the temples of the Holy Spirit. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit. So he says, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God. And they shall be my people and they shall teach no more. Every man his neighbor and every man his brother say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin. No more. I will forgive. And their sin will be as far as east is from the west. Folks, does east and west ever meet? (laughs) They never meet. That's how far their sins will be. When they see Him whom they pierced, we're told they just weep. They weep. When we realize the presence of the Lord in our lives and we've taken a alternate path and we look back and see him. The conviction of the Holy Spirit does one thing. It causes us to weep. Can you imagine a nation weeping because they see their Messiah coming? But he's coming for them. He's coming to them. And he's coming to be with them. is his everlasting love, amen?